Good morning, Covenant Fellowship. It's always good to be together. If you would open in your Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus 20. Our text this morning is Exodus 20, verse 16. And as no doubt the majority of you know, we are continuing in our series on the Ten Commandments. We're coming down the home stretch. We're now at the Ninth Commandment. And there are two more sermons uh, one on the Tenth Commandment, and then a summary. We're on the Ninth Commandment, and the title of the sermon this morning is Do Not Bear False Witness. And looking at Exodus 20, verse 16, it says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You, that you addresses all of us, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You remember that there was a Pharisee who asked Jesus one time, who's my neighbor, to try and get out of having to obey a command. Our neighbors are everyone who is around us. Our neighbors are everyone. I'd like to begin today by bringing to your remembrance the story of Naboth's vineyard as told in 1 Kings 21. King Ahab wanted to acquire Naboth's vineyard. But Naboth refused to sell it to Ahab at any price. You see, Naboth inherited the vineyard from his fathers, and the law of God forbade the permanent selling of land. So righteous Naboth replied to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. In violation of the law of God is what's understood. Well, Ahab returned to his palace. The text says that he was vexed and sullen. Vexed is, is, is upset, churning, angry. Sullen is depressed. And he went to bed that night without eating anything. But when Ahab's wife, Jezebel, asked him, you know, why are you so depressed? Ahab explained that Naboth had refused to sell him his vineyard. She took up... Ahab's offense and replied, are you not the king? Don't you govern Israel? I'll get the vineyard for you. So Jezebel hatched a plan. She sent a letter in Ahab's name with his seal on it to the leaders of Naboth's city. A letter which ordered them to call a fast and to call a solemn assembly and then have Naboth come to the front. At which point, they were to call forward two false witnesses who would accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. 
crimes punishable by death. Well, two false witnesses were found, and they brought their charges forward in the presence of everyone. And a verdict was rendered, and a sentence pronounced. The people took Naboth outside the city and stoned him to death. And it certainly seems from 2 Kings 19, verse 26, that Naboth's sons perished with their father thus ensuring that there were no heirs to claim the vineyard, which became the property of the king. Bearing false witness always harms innocent people and their families. Normally, false testimony is made plausible by close association with something that actually happened. Naboth did have a difficult interaction with the king. People witnessed it. Naboth did invoke the Lord's name. People heard him. Naboth did deny the king, and the king was, in all likelihood, visibly offended. So a very plausible accusation could be framed. He cursed God and the king. But in fact, Naboth never cursed God, and he never cursed the king. Now Naboth is a type or a shadow in the Old Testament of Christ in the New. Like Naboth, Christ is the rightful owner of a vineyard given to him by his father. The vineyard of the Lord. And like Naboth, Christ was convicted of blasphemy and executed on the basis of twisted words and false testimony. Matthew records the chief priests and the whole council. The chief priests... And the whole council council of the holy men were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. It's, It's just astonishing that those whose job it was to teach the law and uphold the law were actively seeking out false witnesses in gross violation of the law. Isn't that astonishing? Well, they found two witnesses who testified that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. He never said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was not speaking blasphemously against the temple. He was speaking prophetically that henceforward the meeting place between God and man would be his body broken, destroyed, and raised. 
That's where we meet God. Henceforward. It's not about a building. It's about a Savior. Who was crucified. And raised the third day. Well... When in answer to the high priest's final question, Jesus replied that one day the high priest would see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And the high priest, in a great flourish and display of of self-righteous indignation, tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. He did not deserve death. They deserved death. He violated no law. They violated the law. Brothers and sisters, falsely accusing someone of some grievous wrong has always been a way for men and women to get rid of somebody. It's always been a way for men and women to get what they want. It's always been a way for men and women to exact revenge. It's always been a way to neutralize or destroy the influence of an opponent. And false witness has always been an abomination to the Lord. Provoking His holy wrath. Our scripture reading this morning, very sobering. If it says nothing else, it tells us that God is very serious about what He has commanded. And that there are deadly consequences to violating his law. False witness has always been an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 6.16 and the verses following. There are six things that the Lord hates. Okay, these are things he hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Like, like this, is, this stuff is an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Abomination to the Lord. One would think that anyone who knows and loves God would be afraid to commit an abomination. Afraid to breathe out false testimony against anybody. Afraid to sow discord amongst any of the brethren. But not only are many Christians today not afraid to violate the ninth commandment, we're scarcely able to discern false witness all around us. And that's because we live in a culture which is so saturated with slander. So 
skilled at cementing public perception of wrongdoing based on unsubstantiated accusations. So adept at leveling charges supported only by a cheering section who already knows that somebody's guilty. We live in a culture that's so energized by tantalizing gossip, so delighted with witty slander, so humored at the devastating put-down that we don't see false witness as sinful, much less regard it as an abomination. Well, the ninth commandment comes to our rescue. It is like medicine for the soul of today's church. So I'd like to proceed by talking about three things that this commandment requires and three things that are forbidden. What does the ninth commandment call for? First of all, it calls for utterly truthful speech. When God, through Hosea, accused Israel uh, repeating five of the Ten Commandments, he said, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love amongst my people. There is swearing, right, taking the Lord's name in vain. There is lying, that's the ninth commandment, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. He's reviewing five of the Ten Commandments. And the word lying is found where we would expect to see the word false witness. So clear, It's a different word. So clearly, the ninth commandment has lying in the broad sense in view and not just testifying falsely with regard to somebody. The ninth commandment calls us to be truthful as God is truthful. God is completely and utterly truthful. God is wholly incapable of lying. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Everything that God says is absolutely true. And that, that should bring you great fear if you have not heeded his warnings. That should bring you great fear of divine wrath and hell if you have not believed his promises of grace. Everything he says is absolutely true, which means for us, all his promises are yes and amen. And that brings us great joy. We've believed and received those promises. And God's utter truthfulness is the guarantee that all he has said he will do for us, he will do. Hallelujah. Well, if everything God says is true, then when we resolve to be truthful as he is truthful, that is an evidence of grace. It's evidence that you're a new creation. So Paul said to the Ephesians, put on the new self. Now that you're a new creation, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, implication Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. 
And J.I. Packer, in his treatment of the Ninth Commandment, reminds his readers that exaggerations or half-truths or misleading silences can all be lies. And we're to put all of that away. And that includes how we speak when someone has hurt us or wronged us. If we exaggerate, if we tell half-truths, if we omit from the story ways that we know our own sin contributed to the problem, then we lie and bear false witness against our neighbor in violation of the ninth commandment. So, this calls us to utterly truthful speech. It calls us to integrity and honesty. Second, this commandment calls us to biblical speech ethics. Subsumed under the ninth commandment is the whole body of biblical ethics concerning the tongue. The Bible teaches that words have power, that words matter, that words can be either wonderfully life-giving or terribly life-crushing, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. False testimony is the pinnacle sin of an entire class of sins. Sins of the tongue. Sinful speech. And as with all of the commands, the sin begins in the heart where it must be dealt with first. We've seen that with other commandments, as is the case with adultery. Dealing with that sin begins in the heart. So the ninth commandment is connected to the idea of our hearts making charitable judgments concerning others. It involves doing what 1 Corinthians commands us to do, and that is to believe the best of others. That's what love does. Love believes the best of others whenever possible. The ninth commandment is also connected to Paul's words in Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up others. Now, now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You might be asking, well, wait a minute. Isn't there a place, like, for strong confrontation? And the answer to that is yes. Nathan faithfully wounded his friend David with a stinging rebuke from the Lord for David's grievous sins. And Paul rebuked Peter to his face for separating himself from the Gentiles out of fear. But there's a big difference between words meant to hurt, crush, or destroy somebody and loving confrontation or gracious polemics meant for their reform and for their building up. And third, the ninth commandment also calls for a commitment to due process. A commitment to due process. In the Old Testament, subsumed under the ninth commandment, was an entire body of law that established principles and rules to check the pervasive human propensity to bear false witness. So the Mosaic law is very specific, and we saw this in both the illustrations that we started with, with both Jezebel and her scheme and the high priest and his scheme. 
The Mosaic law was very specific. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So if an accusation of wrongdoing was made, the witness had to come forward so the matter could be carefully adjudicated. And if in the process of adjudication it was found that the witness had spoken falsely, there were consequences. The penalty which would have fallen on the accused was to fall upon the accuser. So witnesses could be examined, which, which makes it abundantly clear that there was no room for anonymous testimony. Well, those principles of due process were carried forward into the New Testament so that when Paul instructed Timothy concerning accusations against pastors, he said... Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, multiple witnesses and careful adjudication were required. Now, now let me just pause and make a couple of points of application here. First, we violate the ninth commandment when we make judgments and pronounce verdicts and demand consequences based on unadjudicated charges. Justice requires careful deliberation. And that can't happen on the internet. Second, we violate the ninth commandment routinely and egregiously when we bestow credibility upon anonymous accusers who level serious charges against others while hiding behind a cloak of internet anonymity. Now, I know, we know, you know that the, the mechanisms of due process can be manipulated, especially by people with power. That's what Jezebel did. That's what the high priest did. They manipulated due process to their own ends. But we must not abandon due process because it's possible for it to be manipulated. I'm grateful today that we have a judicial system in our nation and in our denomination which seeks to check and restrain false witness while at the same time administering justice where wrongdoing can be shown to have occurred. Some of you might say, wait a minute, our denomination has a judicial system? Huh? Yes, we, we do. And if you're interested in learning why it's necessary, who it's designed to serve, which, by the way, is all of us, and how it works, you can read the Sovereign Grace Book of Church Order, pages 106 to 152. You can download a free copy of our Book of Church Order, which includes our judicial processes. You can download it free from Sovereign Grace, or you can purchase a copy on Amazon. I don't think anybody makes any money in selling these. Uh, it's, 
It's to serve the churches. Well, let's turn now to what this commandment forbids. I'd like to highlight three things that it forbids. Exodus chapter 23 expands on the ninth commandment. And it says, you shall not spread a false report. So now we're not just talking about testifying in a lawsuit or in court. You shall not spread a false report. Exodus 23.1. So here the commandment is broadened. It's not just about originating a false report. It's about spreading one. Which means that if we don't know that a particular report is true, we ought not spread the rumor of it. Don't spread a false report. Do you know it's true? Uh, not for sure. Well, then don't spread it. So often, especially on social media, we speak as if we know what happened. We speak as if we know what a person was thinking at the time. We speak as if our conjecture is established fact. A conjecture is, by definition, a supposition. It's based on incomplete information. Conjecture is reasoned guesswork. And that can be a useful tool in an investigation by those who have jurisdiction. But when we spread an evil report based on conjecture or theory or speculation, when we pronounce someone guilty of wrongs based on reasoned guesswork, when we tell the world what was undoubtedly motivating the accused, when we do those things, we grievously violate the ninth commandment. It's simply wrong. Brothers and sisters, it's a sin to uncharitably ascribe simple, uh, uh, sinful motivations to someone's words or actions and to publish them with an air of certainty as if we had just peered into their hearts and can now announce to the world what we saw there. Only God sees the heart. And I love the way Charnock treats this, this issue in his, his wonderful work, The Attributes of God. He says, to judge the hearts of others is to ambitiously erect a tribunal equal with God's and usurp a judicial power belonging only to the supreme governor of the world. To judge the hearts of others is to pretend to be possessed of the perfection of omniscience. We sin against God's omniscience by censuring the hearts of others. Stephen Charnock, Discourse 8. This commandment, secondly, forbids partiality in what we say of others. Again, considering Exodus 23... That chapter highlights three kinds of partiality. First, it tells us we must not bend what we say of others in order to please the wicked. 
you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So we should never spin our story or our testimony in a way that shows partiality to wicked or powerful people like Jezebel and the high priest. Don't do it. Second, it says we must not bend what we say of others showing partiality to the accusations of a crowd. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear false witness siding with the many so as to pervert justice. <laughs> how, how much harm has been done to innocent people when their brothers and sisters reinterpret their experiences and retell their stories through the dark lens of accusations coming from a crowd. So the ninth commandment here forbids partiality, leaning and bending our testimony towards what a lot of other people are saying. Third, we are forbidden from showing partiality to the powerless. Now this one's surprising, to the poor. It says, nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. Now we intuitively know that it's wrong to shade testimony in favor of the wicked and the powerful. Like, that's wrong. I get it. We intuitively know that mob justice is injustice when we bend our testimony to a crowd who are shouting. We, we know intuitively that that's, that's not good. That's wrong. But we may intuitively want to extend some measure of partiality towards those without power without position. We bend what we say of others towards those who are poor. But here we are forbidden from doing that. And that's because people without position or power can also be tempted to bear false witness. So this commandment forbids partiality in what we say of others. And the New Testament agrees in many places. It tells us that God shows no partiality, Acts 10, Ephesians 6. It says if you are showing partiality, you are committing a sin, James 2.9. James goes on to say, brothers, show no partiality. And Paul exhorted Timothy to do nothing from partiality. Well, that's the second thing it forbids. And thirdly, it forbids gossip and slander. Brothers and sisters, gossip and slander are not trifles. Gossip and slander are not trivial sins. When God speaks of those who he is giving up to a debased mind. Right? So God gives them up. Here, what are those people like? They're people who are full of envy, murder, 
strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. This is absolutely consistent with things that the Lord says is an abomination. Things that are an abomination. Gossip and slander, brothers and sisters, don't characterize God's people. Gossip and slander characterizes those who are under his wrath. Therefore, it, ha it has no place in the church of God. Leviticus 19 says, in keeping with the ninth commandment, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. And then to underscore that, as Jared taught us when we went through the book of Leviticus, he says, I am the Lord. In other words, I mean it. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and stand up against the life of your neighbor. Commenting on this text, Spurgeon said, said this, I love this quote, spreading slander emits a threefold poison. For it injures the teller, the hearer, and the person about whom the slander is spread. Whether the report is true or false, we are by this precept of God's word forbidden to spread it. The reputations of the Lord's people should be very precious in our sight. Let me just pause for a second. You, your reputation is precious in the sight of God, and he's issued laws in his holy law to protect your reputation. The reputations of the Lord's people should be very precious in our sight, and we should consider it shameful to help the devil to dishonor the church and the name of the Lord. Proverbs 11, verses 12 and 13. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Now, now I, have to, I have to put out some caveats when we read that text. Calvin, in his wonderful treatment of the Ninth Commandment, makes it clear that it is not gossip or slander to report wrongdoing to the authorities. He makes it clear that it's not gossip or slander to announce a judicial decision. He makes it clear that it's not gossip or slander to disclose information to those whose safety depends on being forewarned. But he goes on to say, consistent with what Spurgeon said, he who forbids us to defame our neighbor's reputation by falsehood desires us to keep it untarnished insofar as truth will permit. 
Let me invite the band to return to the stage. And what I'd like to do is, is close our time together by reading the wonderful summary of the Ninth Commandment found in the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism asks, what is the aim of the Ninth Commandment? Bear in mind, this is something that, which children used to memorize. Our generation has gotten away from that. We would do well to return to it, at least in measure. What is the aim of the Ninth Commandment? And the answer is that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Before we sing, would you stand with me? Let's read that question and answer aloud together. What is the aim of the ninth commandment? Read it with me slowly that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses and they would call down upon me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.